Welcome to a special six-part series from Talking Volumes. Hosted by me, Ruben J. Brown. And me, Ewan Russell. In 2019, we both made applications for degrees in architecture, receiving offers from universities including UCL's Bartlett School, Sheffield and Edinburgh. And in the autumn of 2020, we're both hoping to take up offers at Cambridge University. In comparison to applying for most undergrad degrees, this is a pretty intensive process. And when we were going through it, we both struggled to find simple answers to some confusing questions. Questions like, what should go in my portfolio? And how should it be presented? Do I need work experience? And do I need to be able to draw? And how? Is there any point in applying to Cambridge? We know that if you're listening to this, you're excited about architecture and want the best chance to get into the best school for you. So we've made this series, which will tell you everything you need to know about applying to study architecture in the UK from a student's perspective. We've got six episodes covering where to start, what to apply for, writing a personal statement, making your portfolio, application drawing tasks, and finally, what to expect at interview. You're listening to episode one, where to start. What we've learned from doing this process is that architecture courses generally want you to be thinking about architecture at a broad conceptual level and less so at a specific level. So they don't really care if you know how to design a building because they're going to teach you that. What they do want you to know is why architecture is important, how it's linked to so, so many issues we see in the world today and how it can dramatically change the ways people live their lives. They want you to be able to define how you feel in a space and be able to start thinking about why that is. What is this building doing for this city and how does it interact with people, transport, other buildings, ecosystems, etc.? To start, we think there's three broad things you could be doing to really help you develop your own unique understanding of architecture and make the application process much easier. These are absorbing, observing and making. If you make these three things part of your life, the way you think about and understand architecture will develop really quickly and become much more personal to you. If we want to think about your application like a building, these three parts might be the foundations, and without them, your building will be unstable. We're going to explain each one in this episode. So first up is absorbing. This means researching other people's ideas through reading books and websites, watching documentaries, going to exhibitions, listening to podcasts, looking into current and past architectural practice, etc., etc. These things don't have to be explicitly related to architecture in any way at all. The skill is being able to relate whatever issues you're being faced with to an architectural context. Asking questions like, how does architecture and the built environment have an impact on this scenario? And how could it be used to make things better? We're each going to recommend a few things we found really useful for forming these thoughts in us, which will give you some jumping off points. And we will have all of our recommendations on the episode's page at our website, talkingvolumes.co.uk. From there, you can follow your nose and dig deeper into areas that interest you personally. When it comes to writing your personal statement and doing interviews, topics with their own episodes in this series, this base of knowledge will be really helpful. So for most of my recommendations, they're not specifically about architecture, but I think they can be really read with an architectural viewpoint. And I think I recommend these over explicitly architectural texts because at this stage, it was just really important to expand my ideas of what architecture means. I went from architecture as buildings and cities and how people use them, like the literal structures of buildings, to a kind of deeper view of architecture as an active element in the ways we all live, with an understanding of how it's linked to every big issue in the world, which is what admissions tutors really want to see at this stage. I've included lots of voices outside of my own experiences, trying to read lots of women and people of colour to get an understanding of how all sorts of different people experience the world and its architecture. 
So my recommendations, I'd say, are probably more explicitly architectural. And I'd say they all came quite early in my development when I was thinking of applying for architecture school. And they've all done something to develop my view of what architecture really is about and how I should think about it and who it can benefit. We want this to be really accessible for as many people as possible. So use your local library, buy secondhand. If a book is a little older, you can often find it super cheap on worldofbooks.com. I love that website. And you shouldn't and really don't need to spend lots of money on this at all. Let's go with my first recommendation, which is Rutger Bregman's book, Utopia for Realists. This book begins with a quote from Oscar Wilde that goes, progress is the realization of utopias, which is such an exciting idea to me. And I think architects really should be utopians like we literally design the future and we should be designing the best version of the future that we can imagine breakman writes to argue for universal basic income 15 hour working week and the opening of all national borders in the world and none of these is explicitly an architectural thing and yet i think architecture really plays a role in all of those things and also like if you're looking for hope in this dark world we live in i think this book is really it absolutely that's so good so my first recommendation is Rowan Moore's Why We Build. And this was one I this was a book that I always saw in in the architecture section of bookshops and always avoided it because it seemed like just too wide reaching mm-hmm. and almost like like it wouldn't really get deep into any interesting issues. But um it actually is a really good introduction in that it spans history and also the world, dipping into all these different themes relating to architecture. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's really good because you can sort of follow your nose and look at some of the architects he's talked about or other books that you might have talked about. He, he focuses really on the making of buildings, so not just their final form. And that, I mm. think, was really important okay. for me to see, like, a building is not just a completed product. It's something that's mm. constantly changing in relation to those that live in and around it. That one's on, like, the Cambridge kind of, maybe you want to read this list, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was quite skeptical of it, but it's a really... Yeah, really interesting book. It also, I think, helped me to start thinking more critically about architecture. So I beforehand, I'd know, oh, I don't really like this building so much. But then I couldn't really articulate why I felt that way about something. And this sort of, he, I mean, he's an architecture critic, so... Mm -hmm. And he writes really well about that, so he makes it a really engaging introduction to that. He's also a critic at The Observer, so if you like his writing, then you can keep following it and see how, like, what he says about current day projects yeah. and stuff like that. I read an interview with him recently, actually, about him as a critic, and mm-hmm. I think that thing about reading that to give you a sort of language to be able to express why you feel good or bad in the space is so crucial to yeah. this application process and yeah. to being an architect in general. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend the Indian writer Anne Hattie Roy, and particularly her novel, The God of Small Things. I've talked to you about this before. Yeah, yeah. I'm so in love with this book. (laughs) Um, It's such a beautiful work of fiction, but also this book totally developed my ideas about how architecture influences our lives. Because she writes buildings like sentient characters within the story. The, The architecture gets personified, which is something I'd never read before. Roy trained as an architect before becoming a writer, and she's written essays about nuclear weapons and dam building in northeast india and a whole load of other things um but the way that she uses architecture in a story is really powerful there's a scene where there's a man who's quite 
ill and he's living in this kind of mud hut and I quote, the orange walls held hands and bent over him, squeezing the breath out, as if the hut itself was causing this character's illness to get worse. And for me, that's about how powerful the effects of architecture has on how we heal and recover from illness and how architecture can exacerbate poverty, but can also change it. And there's so much more like that in that book. Yeah, helping to sort of define how architecture really frames our lives. Yeah, and I liked reading that in fiction. Yeah, like non-fiction maybe doesn't do that as well. For me, at least, I get a kind of different level of, the human empathy side of it from reading mm-hmm. it in fiction, yeah. uh, which I found really interesting. Yeah. So my next recommendation is a book by Juhani Palasma, who I think is a Finnish architect, and he advocates an architecture that's based on all the senses, not just vision. So in his book, The Eyes of the Skin, Architecture and the Senses, he talks about how we've become quite ocular-centric, which is privileging mm-hmm. the vision over mm-hmm. the other senses in our view of architecture. For me, it was really an eye-opener on the experiential qualities of architecture, so how we really experience architecture. And weirdly, I'd never thought about the fact that we are more than just visual creatures mm-hmm. and, and how mm-hmm. much we should be taking that into account when it comes mm-hmm. to designing like sounds yeah. and the sense of touch. And he even talks about smells, which I think is maybe sometimes, he, he sometimes goes a bit too far with it. <laughs> so like, like with everything, you've got to think, okay, there's, there's you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Think critically about it. Yeah, but no, it's really interesting. Like talking about architecture as something experienced through the body that got me onto so many other really interesting ideas. I'm just going to jump on you now because we've both talked about this podcast so yeah. much recently. Uh, if you like podcasts, this is so for you. It's on BBC Sounds. It's called The Art of Now Hearing Architecture, yeah. which is a long interview, uh, half an hour, but kind of very in-depth with a blind architect and the ideas expressed in Plasma Seals and Skin, which I still need to read. He embodies and uses in his work yeah. and talks about a door handle or a handrail on the a, on a stairs being like the handshake of a building. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. And also, he talks about vision as almost a, a distancing sense. Yeah. Whereas touch is something that you have to come towards the building and engage with it. So it's about not standing back from buildings to get a sense of them, but really engaging with them. Because that's not how we actually experience them as functional existing objects. Exactly. Like. Yeah, it, it helped me really to become less superficial in how I think about buildings and try and think more like just someone who experiences buildings not have this Mm. kind of Mm. architect's distant viewpoint and also it's a really short and well-written book lovely i'm going to recommend the entire penguin modern classics one pound collection brilliant which is 50 little books of like 50 pages by 50 plus authors and poets and civil rights leaders each book is just a pound and short enough to read in an hour or two so you can get through loads of different voices quickly and anyone who considers themselves a designer an artist a poet anything creative should read albert camus create dangerously but you can start with any of these texts i recently read the martin luther king one and was thinking about how segregation is a deeply architectural issue and how architecture still segregates people today and like again that's another kind of big cultural and societal justice issue that is really architectural at its core yeah i think you can read a lot of these texts with that in mind yeah yeah if you're taking that architectural viewpoint and looking at all these really important texts Mm. from throughout history Mm. then you can see how architecture could have influenced that scenario yeah totally it's interesting to see like how architecture comes into these really important issues so my last recommendation isn't a book but it's more just something to look at and it's assemble who are an art architecture design collective I was introduced to them quite soon before my Cambridge interview, I think. What I really liked is that they have these really community-driven projects that emphasize the care and ownership that communities have in their own surroundings. Mm. So Mm. 
it's not about architects and designers just delivering a solution to communities, but it's more process orientated what they do. Mm-hmm. So they um, work with the community instead of for them to really create something that people have a lot of ownership of and like agency yeah. in. And also because they don't define themselves as like an architecture firm, they have this position where they can do a really diverse range of projects and yeah. um, it's less like the traditional architecture which is like making a cool building and it's mm-hmm. more like working in the spaces in between spaces mm. so one of their projects the cinerolium which was one of their quite early ones where they took a um petrol station in between it closing and being demolished and turned it into a cinema that people in the area could use it's so cool just jumping in there and using space and i really yeah, think here's that a is space that we could use let's go do it yeah like, like how really yeah how radical. they're using their skill as designers yeah yeah it's yeah. just really inspiring i think they also won the turner prize in 2015 for their work in granby mm. four streets in liverpool mm-hmm. where they First were architects of, to do that yeah it was amazing thinking about how we can think of architecture as art but also mm. something that you know is very personal and people live yeah. in and around yeah architecture is something that is bringing together so many different perspectives mm. and they've got a great website where you can look at all their projects yeah. and they've got such a range they had one of their architects on 99 percent invisible recently as well yeah. which i'm going to recommend as well to anyone listening to this 99 pi is like the best design podcast um but i'm going to recommend particularly uh, an episode called the accidental room which is that same kind of gorilla there's an empty space let's use it for something really cool it's such a good story i would check yeah. that out yeah yeah, you recommended that one to me and I just found it amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like a really funny story and kind of heartening and also like a little bit unbelievable, but very real. And I'm just going to quickly recommend Grace Kim and her TED talk about co-housing. If you don't know what co-housing means or why it's important, let her explain that and, and go watch her TED talk. But Grace Kim, very cool. So now we're on to number two, observing. This basically means paying really close attention to the architecture that you personally interact with and deeply interrogating how you feel in a space and why you feel like that. We've got an exercise for you that really helped us to develop our thinking when it comes to the lived experience of architecture. It only takes a few minutes and you can do it literally anywhere that a human has played a part in designing. Ewan went out and recorded a little demonstration of this exercise recently and we're going to play it for you now. To consider how we can start to think about architecture and how it influences the experiences of its users, I met up with my friend Thomas. Whoa. Hey, it is. Hello. Hey, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Thomas I'm isn't an architect or an aspiring architecture student, but like most people, he spent a lot of his life in and around buildings. We all have loads of experience of architectural spaces. The question is how can we start to express and develop the understanding this gives us? The space we decided to go to is this public walkway with some places to sit, sandwiched in between Durham's passport office and the river we are below. Sitting on some stairs facing the river with our backs to the passport office, we started to pick apart the sensory experience of the space. What could we hear or smell, and how was this influencing what we were doing and the experience we were having? So what can we hear, Thomas, here? I think um, river water. Yeah, uh, definitely a clear one. Yeah, because there's those weirs there which are sort of channeling the water. And that makes it quite loud. There's this constant white noise and movement. Now some of this might sound kind of obvious or boring, 
but I have found it really helpful if I feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of things and information that I could consider it's in a space. diagonal to us. The sound of that is quite drowned out by a... It's probably the water, mate. Yeah, yeah, because it's, yeah. it's this road bridge which passes over the River Weir, and it's actually surprisingly quiet. Yeah. What is quite loud, and this is kind of an on and off sound, is uh, the construction work happening opposite across the river, yeah. which is actually on the site of the old demolished passport office. Yeah, yeah. And which is weird because we're in the new one. So there's some drilling there. So by starting simple and thinking about the sensory experience of the area, we were able to identify some of the key features that were having an impact on the space we were in. We can really easily take these observations further by looking around us and considering how these features make us feel. How are they influencing the experience we and other people are having? When thinking about architecture, it's always important to keep coming back to its users. How do you think the sound and movement of the river is influencing your your feeling? Here? My feeling? I, f I feel like it's quite relaxing. I feel yeah, most people yeah. relaxed by uh, being around water. And I yeah. think um, quite a lot of people actually come here. And I think that yeah. that's not necessarily because they're getting their passport stamped yeah, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's I quite a popular it, yeah. public space. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting because the old passport office was this building that had razor wire around it so people could <laughs> get in. And the new one's so different because there's this public walkway which wraps around it. So you're kind of in between the passport office and the river. Yeah. But having that weir right in front of us, which the water is kind of splashing through, yeah. it definitely makes the river much louder. It does, I yeah, think, drown yeah. out the sound of the road. I mean, the weed looks quite nice. It is quite... It's a nice retro. It's quite mesmerizing to watch. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, yeah. And also, like, it means that we can sit here right now having a conversation, and it's not, not like we're just staring at something static like this wall, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's like we're looking at the water moving past this weir. We're looking at cars driving over that bridge and people walking on the opposite side. We're also looking at construction workers building where the old passport office used to be. So there's a lot of movement happening and yet it still feels like quite a nice space to just sit. Yeah, yeah. By this point we'd considered the visual elements of the space and made some points on its layout. How the space looked wasn't something we focused on too heavily in this conversation, but for some architecture it's a more important and defining element. Just like with the other senses, it's important to think about how a space's visual characteristics might affect the experience that you or other people are having. Is this a deliberate move from the designer? If so, why? This is something you might want to consider through drawing, but we'll talk about that more in a future episode. Do you feel, in a way, like you're being overlooked a bit by the people in the yeah, building? Because yeah, there's yeah. different levels, but that's never even too much of an issue. So here we identified a feeling, in this case being overlooked, and we're able to think about how the architecture helped to create that feeling. Other factors like the amount of glass around the building's ground floor and its security presence helped to amplify it. When discussing this feeling more and considering why we felt this way, we were able to attribute it to our past experiences skateboarding there. Thomas and I have both skateboarded here in the past quite yeah, a lot, and yeah. I still do quite a bit. Unlike most places, you never actually get told off for skating here by yeah, any security yeah. guards, but they've still put skate stoppers here multiple times. But the only time a security guard did come out was when one of my friends fell over and the security guard came out, we thought he was going to tell us to clear off, but he just was checking if he was okay after falling over. Because <laughs> he, he said he'd seen him on the uh, CCTV, yeah. which was kind of interesting. And ever since then, you kind of do recognize that the security guards don't really make their presence felt so much, but you can definitely 
you definitely know they're watching you, especially after that incident. It's clear that we interpreted the space in a different way when using it for skating than when we used it for sitting. In some ways, this was about how we felt. When skateboarding there, we felt more like we were being watched than when we just sat there. But it's also about how we viewed the architecture. As skateboarders, we viewed the stairs as something to do tricks down, but when we recorded this, we saw them as a place for walking down or sitting on. This is a really important issue when it comes to thinking about spaces. Architecture is something that is used and lived, therefore different people carrying out different activities will perceive it differently. An architect might see some stairs as a good way to deal with a change in elevation, but certain users might see them as a barrier. It's important that when thinking about architecture, we spend some time talking to others or thinking about how other users might experience it. Doing this can help us get more of an idea of how far a piece of design really works for everyone. This brought us on to the next part of our discussion, talking about the uses of the space. What is the space designed for and how are people actually using it? Sometimes the answer to this is simple, but in this case it was a bit more complicated. If we think about how other people use this space, which is always yeah. a good question to ask, like how are people responding to it yeah. who aren't really thinking about it so much. Yeah. I suppose the only people we've seen have just been walking through it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that it's, it's mainly for people going for walks, I'd say. Yeah, maybe maybe yeah. you'll sit down. Because yeah. lots of people walk along the river, and maybe, maybe, uh, maybe for people visiting the city as well, you'll, you'll spend a lot of time walking up there, and then this, this is obviously quite different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, the, in the commercial development opposite, you kind of have to walk through there more, but yeah. it's interesting here because there's a road on the other side of the passport office which is a much quicker and more direct route if you're walking yeah. that way. But yet people choose so much to walk around the passport office and get to see the river and the trees and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Does, it, which is interesting. It shows that it is working as a walkway because people are really choosing, oh, choosing yeah, to yeah. use the space. Nice. Yeah. There's, a, there's a little bank as well that's around the yeah. corner from where we are, which um, which, yeah. uh, which goes down to the river. Yeah, yeah. And I, th I think that's quite good because, I, I mean, there's a lot of fishermen who come down here. Yeah. So I think that allows them more, uh, yeah. more freedom Yeah, that's to really fish true. <laughs> I wonder if you could fish from where we're sitting right now. Because it's, well, there's the weirs there, which yeah. probably aren't very good for the fish. But um, you usually think of fishing as something which takes place in the countryside and, like, not in this kind of more urban... Yeah, yeah, setting. but there are there are quite a lot of people who uh, who do fish here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen them, and that that's another use. Which, I mean, I don't know. It might not have been been intended, but it yeah. definitely works for that purpose yeah, quite yeah. well. Another interesting thing here is it is this kind of blending, I suppose, of the private, quite private passport office, which is still a public institution, and then this very public space, which is quite mixed use. People yeah. like to walk along here, sit down here, and then you've also got that this like bar kind of building, which is this weird angular, quite small building. It's interesting in a way because do you remember when this first opened and that was just a building and they hadn't got any, any company it, yeah. to yeah, yeah. to come and occupy it, and it was still quite a popular, quite a popular space for just sitting. But I don't know now. On a Saturday night, well not at the moment obviously, but on a Saturday night you get a lot of people sitting outside there, yeah. outside that bar, especially when the weather's nice. So I don't know what you think, I, I feel like it makes it less successful 
as a public space maybe. The, because, the yeah, because when you're here, at the moment, it's like, okay, we don't need to spend any money, we can just sit here and enjoy it. But then, yeah. when there's the bar there, it kind of feels like... We need to get a drink. Yeah, if there's people there, it's like your experience just sitting here, sometimes is almost lesser to theirs, because they're sitting on these nice yeah. chairs and like uh, having a drink and stuff in the sun. <laughs> I feel like they felt like they needed to fill that space yeah. and to give it more of a prescribed use and way of making some money when really as just a seating area that's very non-prescriptive yeah. and lets all sort of all, all sorts of things happen. Yeah. So it's quite a mixed use space and like doesn't really have a prescriptive use. But I suppose now it does a bit more because of that bar. So we've just talked about how the walkway's ability to accommodate for a range of users makes it, in our opinion, quite successful. Uses like fishing and skateboarding probably weren't originally intended by designers, but the way the space is designed has made it really work for these things. I also talked about how I felt the placement of a cafe bar within the space seemed to impose upon this freedom of use by making you feel the need to spend money. I didn't like how the business created an area of customer-only seating that cuts into the public space. A lot of this isn't down to the architects, but how they accommodate this range of uses within a space is something that impacts how they are carried out. To think more about the success of the walkway, we next compared it to similar spaces in other parts of the city and thought about the area's context. Whereabouts is the space located and does this location give it a certain meaning? So we've discussed how it's kind of orientated towards the river, there's this road and we're getting this view of some of the new developments, Yeah. most of them commercial, which have been built around Durham and on, on the banks of the Weir. And um, I think this was one of the first of this wave of developments. I, th I think this, in comparison to, we can see the Odeon and the other yeah, buildings yeah. over there. I think this actually looks a lot cleaner. Yeah, and also that building is very raised. The one yeah. we're looking at opposite is very raised, whereas this one is really comes down as low as it can to the river. I think that's good. So it makes it, you've got yeah. this much nicer seating area yeah, yeah. next to the river. And obviously all of that is a commercial development. And they've got some seating up there, but it's not somewhere I'd like to sit as much. No, no, no. That's the kind of place you just sit there if you need to sit down after a lot of shopping. <laughs> Whereas here it's kind of like, at lunchtime you very often see people like having their lunch break here. Yeah, this would be nice. And I'd imagine yeah. it would be, especially on a nice day, like today it's sort of cloudy, feels like it might rain, but the sun is also coming out and it's yeah. quite warm. Um, it'd be a nice place to have your, your lunch hour. Yeah. And another thing I've just thought of is like, if you think about what's beyond here, if you go further downriver away yeah. from Durham City Centre, it's kind of a point where, I mean, they're building a new council HQ, Durham County Council HQ. Yeah, there. yeah. But before that, it was just like a car park. Then it's like green space and some houses. Yeah, it's, it's a nice green field. Yeah. And then um, then you've got just woodland, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is almost like a point between the urban and the rural yeah, yeah. area. It's strange how quickly the the, uh, the urban area pieces out. I know. Yeah. yeah. Durham is so condensed. So I suppose it's kind of interesting to see what defines the edges of it, of it as an urban yeah, urban yeah, space. And county HQ. Yeah, the county HQ. So to sum that conversation up, we started by talking about the sensory experience of the space and then brought it back to us, thinking about how it and the architecture made us feel. Once we got a sense of this, we started talking about the functions the area was designed for and how well it carries out these and other uses. 
trying to think through the lens of different users. We then thought about the space within its larger context, comparing it to others in the area and thinking what might be significant about its location within the city. So I think a good question to maybe end on yeah. is to think, is it the architecture that forms our experience? So the, the seating areas, the building behind us, yeah. the buildings opposite, or is it other things like the river and, uh, and the road and, and, and how people are using the space? Um, the river probably gives it um, a bit of a head start, I'd say, in the yeah. enjoyment. Because yeah. probably people aren't going to sit here um, if it was just surrounded by, I don't know, yeah. the yeah. cinema and things. Yeah, you wouldn't sit here if the river wasn't. It wouldn't be such a nice place to yeah. sit anyway. Yeah, definitely not. But then I, I suppose... think the place does help it. Like, if this was... I mean, you could still enjoy sitting here, even with, like, a lesser building. But I think yeah. it does accommodate it Definitely, well. yeah. And I think... Because the river's here, you don't feel like you're just aimlessly sitting down. It's kind of like your sitting down is directed towards something. The river. In a way, yeah, the yeah. river. Yeah. So I suppose, like, it is about the architects and the designers thinking what's already here. Yeah. And then how can we respond to that to make it yeah. a nice place to yeah, sit. Yeah. So I suppose it is the architecture, but also natural things. Even though there's all this building happening, that kind of contributes to the sense of movement here and it seems like a place where things things are happening yeah so this is not at all the only way to think about architecture and there are so many other things you can consider but it can be a good place to start before seeing where your conversation or internal thought processes take you like with absorbing the key here is to follow your nose think about what excites you when you interact with architecture and explore it further once you start getting into this habit of observing, you'll develop your own approach and interests. You'll probably start to notice things that Thomas and I would completely overlook. That's such a lovely conversation and recording you guys made there. And I find it interesting how you talk so much about the construction going on there and how that new development keeps changing the surface and the experience of your city. I find it's really important to keep up to date with any development that's going on in and around your area. So if you see a new building coming up near you, go online and try to find the architects behind it and have a look at their planning proposals. Try to form a view on how this development will impact your local area. And you can also think on a larger scale, what are the broader influences that are pushing architectural change in your area in a certain direction? You can also be recording your observations through things like drawing and photography. The relationship between drawing and architecture is a huge topic that we'll be talking about lots in the future, but what's important is that these techniques are another way of seeing the architecture around you, and might give another dimension to your understanding of a space. We really recommend having a sketchbook with you at all times to make notes of ideas you have and think visually about the spaces around you. It's a fun habit to get into, and this kind of thing helps to show your long-term interest in a portfolio or an interview. Yeah, and these techniques of recording architecture also bridge the gap to the final part of our foundation, which is making. This is a synthesis of the ideas you've discovered through reading and researching in the absorbing part, and what you've understood of the world around you through your own experiences in observing. Taking these two parts, it's now time to release your personal interpretation and create things. We're not going to tell you what you should be making or how, because it should always be personal to you. But we can guide you towards some ideas that will help your thinking when it comes to architecture and will help you make art that expresses that thinking to the university you apply to. 
To do this, we're going to talk about some questions you can ask yourself about your art that should help you make work that excites you and which will in turn help you express your interest to universities while also developing your thinking on architecture. We'll have a list of these questions on the episodes page on our website, talkingvolumes.co.uk, but we're going to talk about them in more depth here. Uh, I think a question that you should always be asking is like, is this work important? And that's such a vague kind of idea, but we can kind of split that up a little bit. So is your work about yourself or about the world and other people? Does it look inwards or outwards? And we kind of say this because as architects, we're designing for other people and our work has to look outwards. So if you're making art in an art foundation or an A-level, is your work kind of cerebral and about yourself? Or are you trying to face issues that you see in the world? And I suppose even though it's not about you, it's really important that you are the person who finds your work important because that's how you communicate that it is important. If other people think your work is important, but you don't have that confidence in it, then like you won't be able to express that. It's a passion thing. Yeah, yeah. If you're making work that you're passionate about and you think is really important, that'll translate itself. And like what makes a work important? Go back to absorbing and go back to researching what important artwork has influenced your own practice and and artists that have really challenged kind of concepts and ideas in the world. And I again reference you to Create Dangerously by Albert Camus, who who writes effectively, if you're creating work as an artist, then you need to be creating work about the times. We're kind of fortunate to live in this, in some ways an artist as like obviously the world's a mess, but there's a lot to make art about. And Nina Simone said that it's an artist's duty to reflect the times. Last year's Venice Biennale was May You Live in Interesting Times. Yeah, I think the more meaning and ideas that you have behind your work, the more important and sort of passionate you'll be about it. And I think facing problems or or issues that you see in the world around you right now and thinking about the future and how those things should change. Mm -hmm. You know, we're architects, our job is to design the future. So if you're setting up an artistic practice that leads into an architectural one, I think that's quite a good way to frame it. Yeah, so I think you're both absorbing and observing. So you're looking Mm -hmm. into the past, but then you're also being really receptive to the present. Like in some ways, these three things, I haven't thought about this yet, but in some ways, these three things we've kind of made are like a past, present, future thing. Yeah. Of like, you absorb the the ideas and the works of people before you, you observe the round around, like the world around you, and then we're creating into the future. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in that vein, uh, maybe the next question to ask yourself is, is your work original? And has it ever been done before? And there's really good reason to say that originality doesn't exist in art. A lot of people say everything's already done. You can't be original. And for me, the only way to actually create original work that's unique is to respond to the time in which you live and the place and the people. And for me, that's the only way to say something with art that hasn't already been said. Maybe that's a really broad statement and maybe that's like totally false, but I think it's worth considering. Yeah, well, I think what you said there kind of makes a distinction between originality for the sake of being original and actually making original work so that it's important and offers something Mm. new because sometimes you might be like oh i don't want to use this technique because because it's been done if you're bringing something new to the table through using Mm. a certain medium Mm. or, or a certain process then i think that is a good kind of originality because you know every technique has been used basically you could say so yeah i think originality does exist in art but it's through sort of what you're finding what you're yeah responding to what you're saying yeah about your direct response yeah and and you should be able to justify why and how your work is important for the current moment and why it is original at least to you having conversations with your art teachers and the people around you and really justifying why you're making your work what does it mean to you Mm -hmm. to make that piece yeah like looking 
around you in your art class, it's cool if you can think about your own work and think, okay, this is my favorite artwork in the room because I yeah. made it and because it's yeah. personal to me and because it's my response to the times I'm living in. Mm, like objectively, there might be better work in the room, but your favorite piece kind of, I would think, could kind of be your own because it's the thing that you're most passionate about if you're yeah. really making work that you're passionate about then it should be your favorite thing and it'll have the most meaning behind it for yeah. you do you really believe in it mm -hmm. and that's i think that's really exciting and and you know asking yourself whether your work excites you is really important as well yeah i'd say that's probably one of the most important things and this all almost comes down to that does mm. your work excite you? And does a piece of work inspire more work? You know, like we need to be creating large volumes of work at this point in yeah. an application and, and in our lives that getting in a kind of create a block stage sucks and it happens to everyone. But if you're making work that really excites you about something that's really important, you might find that you just get in this point where every work that you create inspires the next piece. Yeah. And that's really great yeah. and really fun yeah. and makes creating really easy. Yeah. And if you're really looking around you and have these ideas in your head, then even if you just decide to just make something inconsequentially, those ideas will be, they'll, they'll be behind it. It'll grow into something more than just that initial impulse. Well, yeah. And you can ask yourself, how does one of my works link to another? And one of my favorite artists, David Nash, has done the most brilliant version of this. He had this massive exhibition at the Towner Gallery in Eastbourne recently with these four or five huge panels and he's drawn a map of his entire artistic practice that goes back like 40 years. And he links all of the pieces together. And like, you can do that with your own work. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually told about that work. I've never seen David Nash's map, but yeah, that kind of inspired me to make my own small one. And I mean, there is a certain thing of if you're doing A-level art, you have to play into the hands of the examiner. Yeah. And like making a map is something that was really interesting for you to see how your work's developed and like where your ideas have come from. But it's also something that I think examiners will find really interesting because it shows process. Yeah, such a cool way to explain how you've progressed and how one work is built across another. Yeah. I think you're so right. Like that will pick you up marks definitely yeah. as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not that that's what this is all about. Not at all, but it will help that as yeah. well. And that's, a, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And the next question of like, well, what does your work mean? And for kind of abstract work and sculpture and stuff, that might be kind of difficult to pass out. But I think you should really know that. Uh, Waltzie Maria said that every work of art should have at least 10 meanings, which yeah. is a sentence that almost means nothing in itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because what is a meaning in a work of art? Like these are kind of visual meanings and emotional meanings, philosophical meanings and environmental reasons and et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have to be like, my work means this grand philosophical thing about people. It can literally be like the way that you've used a line can be a meaning in your work, yeah. but people should be able to kind of pass out feeling from it. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. And I suppose if we almost backtrack to absorbing and observing, mm. the meaning isn't something that's like set in stone and defined. Yeah. It's like everyone yeah. takes away their own meaning from a work. Mm. And I think if your work allows that, and make space for the viewer to find mm. their own meanings, then that mm. can make it really interesting. And maybe have conversations with people in your life about, well, what is the meaning of this work to you? You know, like yeah. talk to your friends in art classes and talk to your teachers. And before you start justifying what you think the meaning is, ask them what they find meaning in it. Yeah, you don't want to close the meaning of a work. Yeah, totally. Because that's the thing about art. It can convey more than words in that you can just have this infinite range of meanings. Mm. And sometimes yeah. that's really <laughs> overwhelming. 
Yeah. But like, it's what's so fun about it. Yeah. So another question that's good to ask is like, does your work show that you understand 3D space? And this is something that architect schools are always putting in their criteria for portfolios. Mm. Like, does this work show that you understand space? And it is really vague yeah. in many ways. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And there's some questions that you can ask yourself to kind of further that of like, well, how would you present this work in a gallery? And you can think about how the presentation of that work is an architectural experience. Like, how would people move their bodies to interact with the work? Yeah, you come back to the body thing again. Yeah. yeah. In the Louisiana Museum near Copenhagen, which is one of my favorite buildings in the world, yeah. there's this Giacometti room, which is one of my favorite rooms in the world. But there's these Giacometti sculptures there that everyone imitates with their body. Everyone moves in this certain way through that building and through that space to really physically interact with these sculptures. And I think thinking about how, even if it's a painting, how do people intuit the response physically how do people move through the space to respond to that yeah work? and it's like i live quite near the angel of the north by anthony gormley mm. mm-hmm. and that's something that most of the time you experience by driving past it so i think yeah. it's cool to think okay how might people experience this in different ways and again mm. people do that same thing of if they go and visit it they'll sort of pose in front of it doing the you yeah, know, doing the hands out. yeah and that yeah. shows like there's something spatial about it and it's evoking this physical response yeah, it's like the Juhani Palasma thing. Like, is there just one viewpoint that you might step back and just see the work from? Or is it yeah. something that invites you to really engage with it? Or even like, if you're just doing a drawing, does that show that you are exploring space through your drawing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's another element of that understanding yeah, yeah. 3D space. Let's move on to our final question, which allows you to discount everything we've just said, which is my favorite question. Are you breaking rules? And I think you kind of should be. I suppose all good artists are breaking rules in some way, and that is how art develops. Mm, yeah. But then once my um, art teacher said to me, okay, in order to break the rules, you actually need to know the rules. Yes. Definitely. And that might sound a little bit sort of conservative and boring, but in a way it's, it's interesting to see, okay, where does my artwork sit within the wider world mm. of art to contextualize your work in that way and think, okay, mm. what rules am I breaking? And like, why yeah. am I breaking them? Whose rules are you breaking? Yeah. And what can you get away with? Like in A-level, I, towards the end of it, started working in um, installation and video a lot which was something my teachers were really worried about because it's like, we're not used to this. Like, they don't really want you to do this. So it was about kind of finding the boundary of I'm pushing at the edge there. What can I get away with here? You know, this is the work that I want to create. This is what's important to me. Yeah. This is what I'm passionate about. What can I push at? What can I get away with? If you think you can make better art by bending a rule, do it. Like, it's going to be better art. And when you're being examined, like, it is scary, Mm. but almost that tension and like you being scared to do something yeah. like makes yeah. the work more exciting and better yeah because that's Pushing giving that, it another meaning putting you on the edge of that comfort zone thing yeah and work like that it kind of exciting slightly more radical work will go down great yeah an architecture interview yeah they'll love that yeah it's like inserting a sort of emotion into the mm. work i suppose mm-hmm. You're not just doing it passively, like you're really thinking about it on a lot of levels. There's a hundred other questions you could be asking yourself about your work, but the important thing here is that you can answer them and justify your answers. That you're really interrogating your own work and exploring how every piece of art advances your thinking. So we're just going to end on a couple more tips. If you're struggling to find inspiration for your work, consider going back a step or two. Find how other artists have dealt with your problems and consider if you've missed anything in your observations that might help inspire what you make. I think it might be worth considering uh, making work based around a particular space, pushing your work further towards architecture and the consideration of how people interact with space. If you live near a really exciting landscape or urban site, it can be useful to use this as the source of inspiration for your work. Because if you ever find yourself stuck, you can just return to that place and observe it more and find more things within it to use in your art. 
So that's our thoughts on the making process of beginning your architecture application, which effectively comes down to make lots and ask questions. It's that easy. Yeah. <laughs> and break the rules. Break the rules, yeah. yeah, yeah. Discount three. everything we just said. Discount everything we just said, yeah. Ignore <laughs> us, please. So let's recap what we've been through in this episode. When we're beginning an architecture application, we need to develop our thinking. Think deeply, laterally, and architecturally. To repeat that architectural metaphor, this is like pouring the foundation of the building that is your application. This foundation has three parts. Absorbing, that's taking other people's ideas and inspirations and thinking about lots of different fields of knowledge with an architectural perspective. Number two is observing, which is paying attention to the architecture that you interact with and how it influences the people who use it, including you. And number three is making, synthesizing the ideas you've looked into with the observations you've made of the spaces and times in which we live to create original, independent, unique and exciting artwork that you feel has something to say. Okay, now you can go and put these three steps into practice and start to develop your architectural understanding. In the next episode, we offer some insights into how to decide what courses you should apply for and how to make the right decision for you. This episode of Talking Volumes was produced remotely in Durham by me, Ewan Russell. And in Brighton by me, Ruben J. Brown. Sorry if you heard any dogs barking, lawn mowing, other house sounds, etc. We're in literally very different cities right now. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got any more questions, want any more recommendations, or want to get in touch for any other reason, you can email us at talkingvolumespod at gmail.com or send us a direct message on Instagram at talkingvolumes. And if you've read, watched, or researched anything we've recommended today, we'd really love it if you shared your thoughts with us. If you want to refer back to the things we talked about today, you can find a quick version of the episode's page on our website, talkingvolumes.co.uk. And if you want to help our show reach more people, you can just drop us a review on whatever service you're listening to and recommend us to a friend. Until next time, keep paying attention to the architecture around you. See you See later. See you later.